Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye. Have you seen uh, AP Bio, the sitcom on NBC? It's a show about high school, or maybe kind of about the idea of high school. Most of it focuses around a guy named Jack Griffin, played by Glenn Howerton, who you might know as Dennis on It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. He's been basically perfect for 15 years or however long that show's been running. Anyway, AP Bio. If you haven't seen it, here's the premise. Jack used to teach philosophy at Harvard, and now he doesn't. So to make ends meet, he gets a job teaching advanced placement biology at a high school in his hometown, Toledo, Ohio. He's misanthropic and not a lovable misanthrope, really, just a grumpy jerk who thinks that if the world were a fair place, he'd be getting a MacArthur Genius Grant or whatever. And Maybe you're thinking you've seen this kind of show before, the teacher who comes back home and then he grows as a person, becomes lovable and relatable, and then he discovers maybe there's a little more depth to his dopey students than he thought and blah, 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 blah. But AP Bio isn't that show. I mean, in the very first episode, Jack stands up in front of the class and says exactly that. But here's the deal. I do not care about biology. We're not going to do any biology in here. And to be perfectly clear, this won't be one of those things where, over the course of a year, I secretly teach it to you. This also won't be one of those things where I end up learning more from you than you do from me. I know more than all of you combined, so (laughs) that doesn't make any sense. Glenn Howerton is also backed up by a tremendous supporting cast, including Patton Oswalt and Paula Pell and some very funny and smart teenagers. It's created by my guest, Mike O'Brien, who grew up in Toledo. He's a longtime writer on Saturday Night Live and a veteran of the Second City in Chicago. Before we get into my interview with Mike, here's a little bit from the show's newest season. You don't need a lot of setup here. It's another day at Whitlock High. Class begins again, and Jack walks in late again. Okie dokie, everybody. Sit down and start to shut up. Uh, oh, hey. Kudos to you guys for acting like normal teens. Normally when I walk in here, it's like a friggin' creep show. (laughs) I just found out today that I have a mailbox here at the school. Who knew? My family's mailbox is a tiny replica of our actual house. I like to imagine a tiny Victor lives in there and that my house is a mailbox for an even bigger Victor. Good to know, Vic. All right, Sarika, I need you to separate out all the mail order catalogs, okay? The junk mail is great research for my book. I want to examine why people find happiness through the consumption of ridiculous products. So, uh, who here has parents that have bought things off of an infomercial? Oh, my mom swears by the ped scraper. It's like this potato peeler for the dead skin on your feet. It reveals her glowing, sexy foot without the price of a spa. Mm. Guys, I can't be the only one who cuts him off. Right now, who else has something? <laughs> Michael Bryan, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. So did you start with that character or did you start with your star, Glenn Howerton, and work from there? I started with the character of Jack. I first actually thing I had was the monologue he gives in the beginning of the pilot episode and wasn't sure what that monologue would be for. Sometimes I do solo shows at, you know, UCB and and other comedy theaters. So I was like, 
Is this something like that? Just having a teacher come in and quote every movie that's ever happened be like, this isn't going to be like that movie. This isn't going to be like that movie. And uh, try to dispel every trope he can. <laughs> and um, it's hopefully better in execution than that description of it. But but I had that monologue for a while and then built a character in a scenario around it that eventually seemed like it wasn't a sketch. I was at SNL still, so I was also like, is it a sketch or a video? And eventually I was like, it, it feels more like the beginning of a, a show. How did you recognize what the difference was? Just kind of a guess. That's how I every idea that you get when you're working like at SNL, you go, is this, uh, you know, live sketch, video, uh, song, uh, tweet? <laughs> like, maybe it doesn't even have legs to go more than 100 whatever characters. Um, and so your brain is doing that all the time. And then you kind of just guess. You're like, I think, I think this thing is a sketch. And then you get harshly told by the world whether you were right or wrong. Had you tried to write a sitcom before? Yes. Well, kind of simultaneous, I wrote. I wrote two pilots around the same time, my, my final season of SNL. So what is the challenge for somebody with a background in sketch writing and performing as well to capture what a sitcom is and what's special about a sitcom? The challenge for me was really like the um, multiple acts, um, which is funny because they're not too dissimilar from long-form improv, which I'd done and taught and everything in Chicago for nine years. Um, and those are often half-hour-long shows that have three r- repeating chunks to them that aren't aren't too um, unlike the acts in a, a sitcom. But they're, you know, a little bit messier and crazier, and they don't have to follow the cleaner structure that a, an actual sitcom has. So most of the challenges honestly were kind of in my mind it was the idea that people who were more experienced at at this would look at it and think it's bad or messy or breaking some rule and once I just got past that fear and then by the time I got to the point where I was reading other people's pilots to hire them as writers you realize it's kind of a low bar (laughs) 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 and that my messiness is shared by most uh, beginning writers I mean there's amazing writers out there but they're not the ones always like me you know creating pilots for the first time and those of us who are it's a little bit messy because I mean there are a separate set of rules for a sketch and for a sitcom, not just in that one is longer, but like a sketch usually has a, a premise or a they, they, in the UCB they call it a game, uh-huh. right? A thing that's distinctive that's being elevated, like you know the Monty Python cheese shop doesn't have any cheese, right? No kinds of cheese, right? right? And then just more and more crazier kinds of cheese, and then more basic kinds of cheese. Like you just play it out however you can to yeah. to give it some shape. A sitcom is like a place you go visit. Uh-huh. So it both has its own internal structure and it has this kind of thing that it is. Yeah. It is your friend from television. Right. And that is a really different thing than a sketch where your goal is just to be as funny as you can. Yes. And so one of the things I feel like we talked about in our room a lot that I don't know if this is always talked about in every room is are we making sure while we're adhering to all the sitcom structure rules 
um, that each each little two to three minute chunk is funny. So trying to keep that same sketch mentality there, even though, yeah, it isn't quite the same, you know, at the end of a sketch, since you may never see any of these people again, people can die, they can fly away, whatever. People typically just all explode at once. <laughs> yes, exactly. When, you, when the author has run out of jokes. <laughs> exactly. They explode in sketches and in sitcoms they hug. Yeah. That uh, <laughs> you just, at the end of every scene, everyone hugs because they, they need to be around each other again the next week. But um, yeah, so we would kind of monitor that. We'd be like, okay, so we we have a perfect scene for the sitcom aspect of it. We have that Jack finds out this information that leads him to this next thing, and that's all good. Is there anything funny about it? <laughs> like, what can we make that's funny? And I'd love if it wasn't just some side comments um, like the one in the uh, that you just played where Victor says an insane out of nowhere thing about he believes his mailbox is or his home is a mailbox for a giant. <laughs> Those are fine sidebars, but like something like a sketch premise in the bones of each scene where this character wants this and can't get it because of this. And there's a heightened and re- repetition to that. And it's tricky to keep both going at once. And it makes me look at older shows that where it works. And, and it's so impressive. Your star, Glenn Howerton, who until this show is probably best known as one of the stars of Always Sunny in Philadelphia on FX, he is so skilled at being a jerk, not least because he's been on the best show about jerks for 25 years or however long Always Sunny's been running at this point. (laughs) But like Always Sunny, I think, has a trick in its structure, which is that while every character on the show is evil, and if, like a fundamentally bad person, like on a really <laughs> central, like core level, a bad person. Yeah, like way worse than the Seinfeld four. Yeah, exactly. Dramatically <laughs> yeah. worse yeah. than the Seinfeld four. I mean, it's like what if somebody heard that thing about everyone on Seinfeld being a bad person, then took it literally. Right. <laughs> um, but what happens on Always Sunny is, first of all, everybody is the same amount of evil. Uh-huh. And... None of them call any of the rest of them, each other out on them being evil. Right. And they're on a mission. Yeah. Every episode, they're on a mission. Yeah. And so the trick that they play on Always Sunny to get over the fact that every one of their characters is a monster is they say, look, it's a team of monsters. We have a goal. You're on board with the goal or not on board with the goal. And, you know, and then they, you know, they also have a cast of people like Glenn Howerton who are good at doing it and being fun. Yeah. On your show, you are contrasting his character against a world of people who are generally pretty good people. Yeah. That seems like a bigger challenge to me than making a show where everybody's the bad guy. <laughs> well, f- I mean, 14 seasons of anything is the bigger challenge. No, but, sure. uh, but, <laughs> but yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a whole different thing. Um, the, you're also, forgive me, on network television. <laughs> yeah. Yes, that's true. Um, uh, Network television is still happening, you guys. Um, (laughs) Check it out. But um, that is such a a, a kind of fun thing, actually, to play with when he's a bad influence on these good people and when they're a good influence on him. And then when it's just like a curveball, like the three women in the faculty lounge, Mary, Steph, and Michelle are the character names. Jack, you're always reading in here. Want to join our book club? Oh, you should. We're reading The Question Is the Answer by this hot buttered crumpet named Miles Leonard. Oof. I think you would like it, Jack. It's philosophy, but there's like a point to it. 
they are just like outside of his good or badness. They just roll their eyes at at him. They're kind of based on my older sisters and their friends who would just like tease me mercilessly. And all his stakes are nothing to them. (laughs) So there's that's another fun route to go with it, which, which is he's all fired up and angry about some injustice that he's going to write and that's been done to him. And, and, and they just laugh and are like, what are you talking about? You're an idiot. Your, your pants are dumb. But there's a lot of like him turning people bad for a minute and then, and them um, turning him better and better that I'm yeah trying to picture on Sonny. Most of the time it's like a guest comes in, pulls their hair out in frustration at the four of them and their idiocy and then leaves and is gone forever. And they're back to their normal world again. There's that great line on um, Simpsons that I feel like they felt that all sitcoms kind of have to follow where they were like, there was some especially big thing that turned their world upside down. And they said um, near the end of the episode, one of the kids asked the parent, um, so is this like this forever now? And they said, no, next week for whatever reason, it'll just all reset and it'll all be normal. (laughs) Back to normal again. The show is set in Toledo, Ohio. You grew up outside Toledo, Ohio. Yeah. How much of the show did you want to be about Toledo, Ohio? And how much of the show did you want to be about the idea of high school? That's a great question. Definitely a lot about Toledo and the idea that I had a really great childhood there. I was just outside Toledo, but you drive in every day. I went to grade school and high school in Toledo and I think of it as home and and loved it and had a great time. And then I was living, you know, in places like Chicago and especially in Manhattan where people are very snobby about it. And so I liked the idea of a character who comes in with their point of view of snobbiness towards it. Even though he's from there, he's been in Harvard and living a fancy life for long enough that he really looks down on this place and then have my actual experience slowly turn him. So that is the big, bigger story of the show. And as far as high school, I think I initially was like, I think it'll be an adult show in a high school, which you don't see usually. It's in fact, almost always fully focused on the kids because it is this interesting loaded time in your life. And and that's the point of most shows in a high school. But I was like, I think it'll be about Toledo and then also about what the adults world of a high school is. Our sets were not kids' locker rooms or anything. It's the adult faculty lounge, each of the adults' offices. And then, of course, Jack's classroom are the main sets. So, But then the st- I also assumed the students would be bad <laughs> and that we'd be, we'd be constantly working around them because if you've worked with young actors, they're usually not good. They haven't lived at all. And we right away fell in love with them. There was only going to be a couple that spoke and then more and more started speaking. And soon some of the background people who weren't even cast from an audition, just a quick interview and that they had a funny quip or something in the interview. Soon they were getting lines and I just love them. And now it's, I think, more 50-50 or 60-40 adults. But it started to become a, a show that, yeah, encompasses at all parts of high school, including the students. What were the things about Toledo that when you moved to Chicago and New York, people were snobby about that they were wrong about? Well, one of the things is just that almost no one's been there. And so they make assumptions like on people were snobby about it at AP Bio. Uh, like I'm, I'm in a 12 person writing room and I was the only one who'd ever been to Toledo. And so people in costumes are like, is, there, is it kind of just like JCPenney look? Everyone's in JCPenney. And, 
I was like, no, people, for one thing, there's the internet and people can get clothes there so they can get any clothes you can get. They don't have to drive to Manhattan to get your clothes. And yeah, we used to go to Ann Arbor, go to thrift stores and we did, it's all the same, what we thought was cool. We just didn't quite know maybe as much about, I don't know, sushi or something, (laughs) but we weren't missing that too much. Um, so yeah, it's just a sort of lack of knowledge and a tone of like, is it all, is everyone there just like a weird, angry Republican who eats fries all day and, and doesn't wear pants or something? And you're like, um, no, it's a wide variety of people of all different cultures and backgrounds with different opinions and uh, styles. And But the pants and the fries <laughs> thing. That, that part, yeah, there's a couple of those people, of course, <laughs> and you're going to see them if you leave the house, but... Yeah, we were into weird music. It's it's what I describe as like a lot of places, but coastal snobbiness is a real thing, and people don't even realize they're doing it. They're just genuinely asking a curious question. They're like, "So, would you guys ever have used uh, forks, or is that?" Like, yes, <laughs> we use plastic forks all the time. <laughs> what about the other way around? I mean, you're a guy who left Toledo, Ohio, very intentionally. Yeah. And have lived in New York and Los Angeles for a long time. Yeah. What is the misunderstanding the other way around? I think they've got it right. I think it's pretty right. <laughs> no, um, I don't know. I, I think um, I think it's pretty a similar thing where you just take the most extreme types of people from any place and forget that Everywhere's got a variety. And in fact, there's like a backlash to that wherever you're living. So I feel like if living in L.A. now, if anyone's about to say a very L.A. sentence, they like have disclaimers and apologize first. And it's not like anyone here is embracing the fact that we all, you know, it's a mostly liberal place that loves avocados or something. If you start to say a sentence like that, you, you say first. And I know I sound like an idiot when I say this, but... And I mean, Los Angeles does have not just one, but a chain of restaurants where every item on the menu is an affirmation. <laughs> that is a real chain of businesses in Los Angeles. What, are they, what do you mean? They're like, you're a good person is the name of the burger or something? I'm a good person. I'm a, the name. Uh, so in order to order it at the oh, counter, you have God. to give yourself an affirmation. I mean, it's a lot. There's a lot of that kind of thing going on. And certainly in Manhattan, just the type of uh, money and fame that I was around working at SNL was just kind of overwhelming and, and weird. Um the funny thing is a lot of people that live in New York and L.A. are transplants. So they're, you know, you're talking to a, a nice person from Idaho who ended up getting into making documentary films and lives here now. It's not all um, L.A. born people. It's always fun when you meet one and they're like, yeah, I grew up a mile from here, especially especially in Manhattan. I was always fascinated by that. I was like uh, Simon Rich. I worked with a lot. He he runs like Miracle Workers nowadays and uh, writes a lot of great books. And he grew up in Manhattan and I would just ask him about it all the time. I'm like, so when you were 10 and you were like, it's time to go out and play. I'm on summer break. You went down to like 53rd and Broadway and played? <laughs> what did you do? And he's like, we could sometimes find one empty basketball court on the Upper West Side, but then bigger kids would kick you out pretty quickly. It just sounds stressful to me. Even more with Mike O'Brien in just a bit. After a break, will Jack Griffin, the protagonist of AP Bio, ever become a good person? Stay tuned for the answer. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. 
Support for Bullseye and the following message come from RCA Records, presenting Pink's new album, Hurts to Be Human, featuring the hit songs Walk Me Home, Hurts to Be Human, featuring Khalid, Hustle, Can We Pretend, featuring Cash Cash, and more. Pink's new album, Hurts to Be Human, available everywhere now. Hi, I'm Allie Gertz. And I'm Julia Prescott, and we're the hosts of Everything's Everything's Coming Coming Up, Simpsons. Simpsons. Every episode, we cover a different episode of The Simpsons that is a favorite of our special guests. We've had guests that are showrunners and writers and voice actors like Nancy Cartwright. I got a D minus, I passed! And we've also had people that are on the Max Fun Network already. We've had Weird Al Yankovic on the show. I was just uh, struck by how sharp the writing is. I mean, that's yeah. no surprise because it's The Simpsons, but I mean, like, you can't say that about a lot, a lot of TV shows, particularly ones that at that point had been on the air for 14 years. Find us on MaximumFun.org, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, smell you later. If you love this show, then check out Life Kit, tools to help you get it together. Think of it as that friend who always has great advice on everything from how to invest to how to get a great workout. Subscribe to Life Kit All Guides to get episodes on every topic all in one place. Find it in Apple Podcasts or at npr.org slash lifekit. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Mike O'Brien. From 2009 to 2015, he wrote and acted on Saturday Night Live. He also created the TV show AP Bio. It is a dark, weird, and hilarious high school sitcom. Its second season is streaming now on NBC. What was your high school experience like? You went to an all-boys school, right? I did, yeah. I went to an all-boys school uh, called St. John's, and I liked it a lot. It was... Um, is it a parochial school with that name, or was it a... Yeah, it, uh, Catholic. In a kind of a modern era Catholic school, not really... Um, there was only, like, one priest that, that was working there, and... and I remember, like, one of the teachers, we had a class called Morality, and one of the teachers was explaining, he would always say, the church's stance is this, and what you really do is this for everything. <laughs> and one of the examples he said was, like, the church says you can't use condoms ever. I'm a married man. We don't want to have more kids. When I sleep with my wife, I use condoms. This teacher's son was in my grade. <laughs> 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 he was not in that 20-person uh, morality time slot. But, yeah, I, I then was always like, oh, wow, right. So his parents are still having sex. <laughs> I mean, all of our parents probably were, but you, you're in denial until the teacher says it to your face. But, yeah, that was the vibe. And then, I don't know, I, I always go back and forth on whether I would, if I had kids, send them to one-sex one schools. Um but I, I had a good experience, and it was it was a lot of fun, and um, uh, met a lot of great people that I'm still friends with, and several are still back in Toledo. There's this famous thing on Freaks and Geeks where Paul Feig had the writer staff all just write down all their most intensely horrible experiences of their adolescences on three by five cards and then they just made a nightmare board (laughs) and they just pull one or two down for every episode. Yeah. Has making a show about high school, even a show where the high school kids are actually good kids making the more responsible choices than the adults, still led you to have to like get in touch with the painful parts of adolescence? Yeah, and I want to steal that Feig tactic. That's good. Um, By the way, when we also did was we would bring in high school students and teachers in person the first week of the season and talk to them and 
hear their stories and everything. Because working on the show both wakes up little memories like that from our own lives, but also it reminds you how hard it is to re- how far away it was. It's 20 years ago um, that I was graduating from high school or more, and so it's hard to remember what it was like. And you you kind of just have this glossed over memory of it, and then we get into this old person in 2019 thing where we're like, I bet it's all different now too because of phones or whatever. And, <laughs> and you get the students actually coming in, um, one of the writer's um, daughters and her friend came in, friends came in a couple times and they're so similar to us. They were so wound up and all talking over each other and telling, going down these insanely boring rabbit holes about wait, no, who said that? He didn't say that. Yes, he did. That's who said that. And we're like, doesn't matter who said it. Doesn't. <laughs> and you're like, oh, yeah, it's very similar to how we were in high school. And um, I, that the Paul Feig thing sounds like the moments we were talking about. And those were sometimes from our own lives, but sometimes um, just uh, making up one that, that was kind of like an exaggeration or a twist on a real one. Can we talk about Paula Pell for a minute? Yes, please. So Paula Pell is a, a legendary comedy writer, but not a famous person at all. And she's one of the supporting cast members of your show. She's a long-running writer at Saturday Night Live, among other things, and also, I think, an improv legend. Uh, is that also true? Maybe not? I don't think so. Okay. Well, anyway, she's a person whose name I knew from people talking about her admiringly. Yes. But it had never seen perform or do anything until your television show. Right. Yeah. To so many SNL writers from many generations, she's the funniest person you know, and it's just become known as that. It's often lumped in with James Anderson, another longtime writer who was her college friend, and they were two of the funniest humans to be in a room with. And I knew her, I knew she was doing some on-camera stuff like um, Scott Edsit's wife in 30 Rock. And it's it's kind of a fascinating thing that she hasn't been on a million things. And that was often what the writers, the writers were always just like, why wasn't she on SNL? If she was just hanging out being this funny as she is on set around us all the time and elevating the writing that we write so much all the time, how did how did she hang out in 30 Rock for 20 some years and not shift over, and I truly don't know the answer. Paula Bell's character is like the uh, receptionist, secretary, something like that, and has some of the relentless positivity of characters that we know from shows about comedies about the Midwest, like Midwestern positive mom qualities. She also is very strange, just a lot of odd things. And in her words, is as gay as a tree full of birds. I think. <laughs> yep. Yes. Uh, I believe it was the way that's, that she that's another Apollo original. <laughs> as we were talking about before we started the interview, there's so many moments where we're crafting and crafting a joke, talking about one sentence for an hour in the writers' room, and we look over at Paula, and she's just added that she can't stand up out of her chair at the end of a scene and we leave the full thing in and it's the funniest thing in the scene. You're like, why are we crafting these words? Just just po- point a camera at Paula. Happy hump day, Jack. All right. Or for my dogs, that's every day. It can mean just about anything to them. You know, hello, goodbye, I like oh. your style. Hey, you're in my yard, get out of here. Yeah, you know what, I'm gonna kill you someday. Oh, I'm gonna kill you first. No, really, <laughs> you're driving nuts. Let's do it, nuts. wanna go? Oh, okay. I'm gonna kill you. Guys. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, her character, I love everything about the character because it does appear very flat and sitcom-y at first. And then there's a, a psychotic depth to it. <laughs> She's shot people. Some of these are spoilers for upcoming episodes, but they're throwaway parts and no one rolls their eyes around her. Um, she accidentally ate her friend when they got captured on an expedition <laughs> and didn't realize that's what the soup she was being healed by the, this tribe of people. And everyone's just like, what? And then they move on. They, you, they assume that Helen, her character, is thinks that happened, but is misunderstanding something. But you don't know. And, and um, there's just a lot of insane... Insane stuff. She's got a thing in her drawer that's her lunch, which her lunch just <laughs> looks like a big Tupperware thing of spaghetti sauce. <laughs> yeah. And then next to it, she keeps a Tupperware of any hair that she comes across for locks of love. <laughs> and she's always getting them mixed up and putting hair in her lunch, uh, which might, yeah, just be a big thing of salsa. I don't know what her lunch <laughs> was in that, but she's so fun to write for. It's so like, okay, we got the story laid out, we're done. It's been a really long day. Let's just brainstorm Helen for the final half hour as like a dessert. And um, it's the best. She's she's my favorite to write for. One of the thrills of the show is that high school, as most of us know it, is, you know, this crazy, intense, emotional world of students and then a black box of the adult lives. Mm hmm. Which I think is why you made took such pains to clarify that it's a show about the adults in a high school, and there's there you you still I still get a charge out of a scene set in the teacher's lounge. Yeah, <laughs> like I'm an adult man, and and I think like you know Paula Pell's character, the school secretary. I think of how much time I spent wondering who Mr. Roberts, the secretary of the high school that I attended, who literally rode the same bus as me to school. We both took the 26 Valencia to school. Oh, my gosh. And he was a very nice man, but had a goatee, like a goatee goatee. Yeah. Uh, like a pointy one, and <laughs> was just extremely mysterious. Yeah. And because... The only time I interacted with him was to get a tardy slip yeah. or when we nodded to each other as we got on the bus. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. I mean, it is it is a point of fascination when you're a kid. I remember two images that jumped in my mind just now is one, hearing that the someone saw the football coaches, the staff of football coaches, which also happen to be, you know, our health and typing teachers uh, drunk at a bar. And we were like, what? And which is insane to say that sentence and that you were shocked at all that these men went out and who knows if they were even drunk, but to that a high schooler was in there, high schooler spotted them. And I myself saw a freshman biology teacher on a rider mower in front of a funeral home in the summer once and was like, oh, he has a summer job pretty similar to mine. I, I mowed lawns in the summers and it was just mind-blowing we there's a teacher we were fascinated with that we followed home and watched him go into an apartment and just like following a car home like you're in an action movie um just because we wanted to see what d's home was like so they are fascinating to me and i and that faculty lounge is like one of my favorite sets and we talked a lot about that's really a place that you want people to want to be in and we had to create it out of nowhere because the faculty lounges, we went to many high schools looking for a location for the pilot one, and they were so sad. 
and they're not places you want to be. They're often long, thin things with one card table and one hard chair and a soda machine or something. They're like very depressing. The ones we saw, I, hopefully they're not all like this, but I was like, oh, what I always pictured was going on is a bunch of couches and and nice fridge and everyone's talking and laughing and they all know each other and so possibly those kind of roulette tables that like flip over into the ground if the cops come <laughs> right 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 some speakeasy vibe and hopefully that exists in the world but I don't know it, it we couldn't find one around LA when we were uh, rapidly looking for a location but I'd like to think that during that extremely stressful job of working with high school kids you've got a little adult sanctuary that's clean and bright and happy <laughs> I don't know so is your protagonist uh, going to become a good person well once he's fully a good person we're done so <laughs> <laughs> we lose one of the main conflicts of it but that is it's it's like uh a Scrooge story. So yeah, I think that's the idea is that he, not only a good person, but a good person that admits that Toledo is a great town filled with great people and he loves it there. And yeah, we'll maybe have a, a final episode if we get to do more where he, a boy comes to his window and, you know, he gives him a coin to get a turkey or however that. <laughs> I believe it's a fine fat goose. <laughs> yeah. Get, he gets a kid a goose and that's when you, you'll know that's the series finale. Well, Michael, Brian, thank you so much for talking to me. It was great to meet you. This was great, Jesse. Thank you. And I love the show, too. Thanks so much for watching. Michael, Brian, friends, you can stream both seasons of AP Bio on NBC's website and Hulu. The show is really funny. One of my favorite shows on network TV. And... Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you another Michael Bryan thing to do. You should go watch his web series where he interviews people in a closet. That's also a lot of fun. We've come to the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California. You know, in recent years, uh, uh, we've been in this space for... Well, wow, seven years, something like that. But in, in recent years, there has been a big uptick in people living on the streets in our neighborhood. We have a neighbor called Art Division. They do uh, visual arts education for um, teenagers here in the neighborhood. And every year, uh, their students and staff get together to distribute clean socks uh, to folks who live in our neighborhood but don't have homes. And so we're hosting a sock drive if you're interested in sending some clean socks to us, we'll get them to folks who need them in our neighborhood. You can go to MaximumFun.org slash socks for the information. It's MaximumFun.org slash socks. We're also going to be providing a, a bunch of socks. I think we got 125 on the way, 125 pairs. Um, but yeah, be part of it and uh, help these teens uh, help folks in our neighborhood who, who need a hand. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer. Our YouTube channel is run by the great Casey O'Brien. Our production fellow is Jordan Cowling. Our interstitial music is by DJW, our friend Dan Wally. Our thanks to him for sharing it with us. He has a collection of some of his favorite beats that he's made for the show on Bandcamp. Just look for Dan Wally, DJW. Our theme song is called Huddle Formation. It's by the band The Go Team. Thanks to them and their label Memphis Industries for letting us use it. And before you go, there are decades of archives of this show. Almost decades. Decade and almost another decade. 
You can find them all at MaximumFun.org. You can find the last few years' worth of shows on our YouTube channel, broken up by interview and segments. So if you want to share them on uh, social media or just email them to a friend, you can find them by searching for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne on YouTube. Uh, we also share them on Facebook and on Twitter, where we are at Bullseye. I am at Jesse Thorne. And I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR.